Judges chapter 18, it's a long chapter, but it's an interesting story. Um, so let us pay attention to the reading of God's word, Judges chapter 18. The story of Micah continues. Um, this is God's word. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zoroah and Eshtaol, the, their brothers said to him, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come in on unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtel, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanedan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout, scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered, the t entered and took the carved image, the ephod, and the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a, to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priests and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. And the people of Dan went away. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took 
what Micah had made and the priests who belonged to him. And they came to Laish, the people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. And they built the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Amen. Knowledge is power, they say. There's a world of difference between knowing and not knowing. A common imagery of ignorance is darkness. Going through life without knowledge is to grope your way through life in darkness. If knowing about certain things gives us power, such as certain facts, certain knowledge about the mechanisms of organic and inorganic matters. If such knowledge gives us power over other people, how much more power we will have access to if we have proper theology, that is, the knowledge of God and his ways. It is God who created the world and gave to each of his creation its unique properties and qualities. It is God who established the laws by which the world operates, both physically, morally, and spiritually. And it is God who sovereignly directs and drives history according to his eternal plan. If so, what is more important than knowing God, the mind of God, who is behind all of these things? This is why theology used to be called the queen of the sciences the foundation to all knowledge. Knowledge is especially important in worship. How can we worship that which we do not know? But our relationship with God is not confined to worship. Worship is for sure the pinnacle of our relationship, not the only arena of our relationship with God. Since God is the Lord over all and over every aspect of all, our relationship with God spills over into every square of our lives, uh, square inch of our lives. Without worshiping God, without serving Him in all areas of life, is terribly deficient and outright wrong. Without the proper knowledge of God, worship is profaned and religion gets corrupted. True worship is turned into false worship true religion is turned into superstition. And that is what we witness in today's passage. So in today's sermon, we will first observe the downward cycle, uh, spiral of the, the downward spiral in the first epilogue. Second, the foolishness of idolatry. Third, the irony of the Danites' desire to know God's will. And fourth, it's the significance of Israel's condition spiritual condition in the context of their calling. In the main section of Judges, 
in which the stories of the judges are told, we became much too familiar with something very unfortunate. Israel's vicious cycle of unfaithfulness and apostasy in a downward spiral. But we see a downward spiral even in the first epilogue that is found in today's passage. And this is clear if we see what is going on in today's passage in the context of what we talked about last week. There we saw Micah stealing, which was breaking the Eighth Commandment, and stealing from his mother, which is breaking the Fifth Commandment. And we saw his mother breaking the Second Commandment by making a carved image of God. Micah also broke the First Commandment by having household gods, and he broke other commandments by having a household shrine, a shrine and his own family priest. But what about the Danites that we see in today's passage? Other than making a carved image of God, they committed all the sins that Micah and his mother committed by setting up a shrine for their tribe and worshiping God using these forbidden pagan objects and having a priest of their own. But they were worse because they did not repent of their stealing as Micah did. In fact, they threatened to do terrible things to Micah for wanting his stuff back. And they practically kidnapped the Levite by threatening him and bribing, with, bribing him with an offer of a better position. And the Levite had no qualms about leaving Micah, who had been good to him like a father, for a greener and bigger pasture. Add to this the number factor. In the previous chapter, we saw Micah and his mother doing what was right in their own eyes, just two individuals in one family. In today's passage, we see the whole tribe of Dan involved, both at the beginning and at the end. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Ashtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it, verse 2. And verse 30, and the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And in the middle, we see the five spies as well as the 600 Danite men getting involved in this incident, doing the terrible things that they were doing. And by the way, we see that this incident happened not too long after Joshua died, during the time each tribe was conquering his designated territory. So it didn't happen after Samson died. It happened way at the beginning at the book, in the book of Judges. So we see a downward spiral of evil both in numbers and in degree. And we talked about this over and over again. But what's the point? Why do you keep bringing this up that there was this downward spiral? For one, it warns us against the tenacious power of sin to drag us down further and further into destruction. Sin is not something that we can pick it up and play with it and throw it away when we are done. It is more like the spider web, which traps us. And when we try to escape from it, it tightens its grip on us more and more. And this is because, as sinners, our way of escaping from sin is often by covering it up, which leads to more sins. At the very least, the sins of lies and deceptions. But sin does not just trap us, sin is also infectious as well. It not only affects us, but also those around us who must bear the impact of our sins. 
with our sins, we can directly hurt them by lying to them, speaking harshly to them, stealing from them, by abusing them verbally, emotionally, physically, and even sexually. Also, we can indirectly harm them by not being what we should be and not fulfilling our duties towards them in the way that we ought. One rotten apple spoils the battle, they say. A sinner can corrupt and disrupt the well-being of the whole community. Thankfully, no fight broke out between Micah and his people and the 600 Danite soldiers. But he came very close, didn't it? But what was this conflict about? Micah says in verse 24, You take my gods that I made and the priests and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? Many commentators point out the irony of his words. Particularly, you take my gods that I made. How can something be a god if you made it? Of course, we know what Micah meant. He was not saying that the Danites took his gods, which interestingly, interestingly enough can be translated his god because the Hebrew word is there is Elohim, which is a typical word for God. But he was not saying that the Danites took his pagan gods either. He only meant the carved images of God and the figurines of pagan gods and goddesses. So he refers to them as my gods that I made. But were they nothing more than just things for Micah? If so, why did he want them so badly? Was it because of their monetary value? You know that Micah's mother spent 200 pieces of silver, which was not a small amount of money, to make this carved image of God. Probably that was not the reason. In his complaint to the Danites, he says, What have I left since you stole my gods? Lawson Younger shows the irony of the situation in this way. Ironically, Micah is concerned about the loss of gods who could not even protect themselves or their maker. His anguish is that of one whose life is centered on powerless gods. What else do I have? Not only has he been robbed and betrayed, but also without any divine and priestly support for his gods, he feels naked, completely vulnerable to the forces of evil and disaster, the very thing he was seeking to avoid by making the idolatrous objects in the first place. Micah, who at the beginning of the story was portrayed as a thief, is himself the victim of theft. But it is clear why the Danites were stealing these objects. It was not because they were aesthetically beautiful and superb or because they had a lot of monetary value. They stole these religious objects because they believed what Micah believed about them, that they were able to bring blessing, blessing and prosperity to them and to their tribe. And so they were committing the same foolishness that Micah committed. They were putting their hopes on these items that were fashioned by men and could not protect themselves from being kidnapped by people. Doesn't this remind you of Joash, Gideon's father, who said to the people, the townspeople who were trying to kill Gideon because Gideon destroyed the image of Baal, 
This is what he said. Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Obviously, Micah's gods could not contend for themselves just like the image of Baal. Yet the Danites and Micah almost went to battle over them. I doubt that any of us has such objects in our homes. But I wonder whether we have certain things that are like them in some ways. Certain things without which we feel, what else do I have? They may not be carved images of God, but they have come to represent God to us in some way. Most of the times, they are God's special gifts to us, which remind us of God's love and care for us. As such, they are good and precious, but we have to remember, they are not God. While we should treasure God's gifts and be grateful for them to God, if we ever come to that point at which we feel like we have nothing and our lives are meaningless and worthless without those gifts, we have made idols of them. Imagine how offensive this must be to God, that we should feel like we have nothing in our life and our life is not worth living when God is still with us. What is fascinating is that Micah did not fight to the death for his gods. As I said, what is fascinating is that Micah did not fight to the death for these gods. He was willing to use violence, if he had to, to get them back. But when he saw that he and his people were hopelessly outnumbered by these Danite soldiers, he covered his mouth and went back to his home. Obviously, he did not think that these cultic items, by that I mean the things that are used in worship, he didn't think that these were worth dying for. At first, he acted like his life would mean nothing without them. But when push came to shove, he valued his life more than anything, even above these things. And his life would go on without these things. How many such idols do we have? Now that they are gone, are you dead as you thought you would die without them? You're not. Your life still goes on. Even though you felt like if God should take these things away, your life would be meaningless. If so, why should we cling to them so tightly? Do you have anything without which your life is really, really not worth living? Something more precious than your life itself? Can anything be that other than God himself? If we should cling to our idols, isn't it because our theology, our knowledge of God is weak and faulty? Again, we cannot miss the irony of this situation. Obviously, the Danites believed in God. They believed that God exists. He knows the future, is involved in the affairs of men, has the power to bless his people, deserves to be worshipped and served, and they needed him. 
They believed in him enough to inquire about the outcome of their current mission. They believed in him enough to get things that they thought were necessary to worship him and make him happy so he would bless them. But while they believed in God, they were not interested in God or they loved him. They wanted to know whether God would grant them success for their mission, but they didn't care enough to know what God was really like and what his will was actually for them, for their entire life, not just for their mission. They knew that they needed him and they should probably keep him happy by worshiping him, but it seems like their relationship with God was confined to two areas or occasions, worship or religious rituals and fortune-telling. Their approach to God and to worship was self-centered, not God-centered. Worship, by definition, is an act of acknowledging the supreme worth of one that we are worshiping. So no one can properly worship God without being God-centered and without following God's instruction on how we should worship Him. But they worshiped God according to what was right in their own eyes. With the items they stole from Micah, which were forbidden and condemned by God, they set up a shrine at Dan for themselves, even though the official house of God was at Shiloh. They feared God enough to worship Him, but at the same time they thought so lightly of God that he would be happy with however they chose to worship him as long as they worshipped him and he would understand if they worshipped other gods along with him. The way they dealt with God was not according to God's will but according to their own preference and convenience. Can we say that we are not guilty of some of this in the way we worship God and deal with God? It is obvious that they had no love for God. And I dare say that they had no love for God because they did not really know God. Why? Because to know God is to love God. You cannot truly know God without loving Him above all things. That's how beautiful, that's how valuable, that's how glorious God is. No wonder they saw their relationship with God as a business transaction, not an all-encompassing relationship of love. So their religion was confined to worship. This is where they scratched God's back so that God would scratch their back too. But how they lived the rest of their lives was pretty much up to them. If they fashioned their worship according to what was right in their own eyes, how can, we can imagine how they lived in other areas of their lives. That's why they had no trouble Stealing the cultic items from Micah. Can you see the irony of stealing religious items? And they had no problem bribing the Levite to come with them and bullying Micah when he came to reclaim what was his. As we can see, the actions of the Danites were morally and religiously reprehensible. That's so easy to see. But if we step back and see Israel in a larger context, it gets even worse. You see, Israel was set apart from the rest of the world to be a light to the nations. 
It was not that they were called to go out and convert every Gentile they saw to Judaism. That would come under the new covenant in Jesus Christ after the resurrection, death, death and resurrection of Christ. Even so, we cannot underestimate the importance, the importance of their calling as a light to the nations. Just by their mere presence, they testified to the world that there was something other than the darkness of paganism. With the revelation of God and His law for true religion in their possession, Israel was supposed to be the North Star for the world, by which the world was supposed to know its bearing. Yet what you see in today's passage is how the Israelites lived not much different from the rest of the world, maybe in some aspects even worse than the Gentiles. You see, the world is in rebellion against God, and as such, the world is lost. But how much worse is it for the world if it doesn't even know that it is lost because the North Star stopped shining? Israel was supposed to be the salt of the world too, the agent of preservation. And I think this was powerfully demonstrated by Abraham's plea for Sodom and Gomorrah. He said to God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? And the Lord replied, for the sake of even 10, I will not destroy it. Of course, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because these cities did not even have 10 righteous men. You see, Israel was supposed to be the 10 righteous in the Sodom and Gomorrah of the world. And yet Israel was miserably failing in their calling. As we conclude... Israel's downward spiral did not end here. In the next three chapters, we'll see something even more gruesome. But even that was not the end. Eventually, the Israelites would be cast out of the promised land, even as the Canaanites were cast out by their forefathers. The long history of Israel demonstrates the power of sin, and Israel's helplessness against it. Like a poor creature that is caught in the spider web. Throughout its whole history, it showed that Israel could not free themselves from the web of sin. You see, they desperately needed help from outside, from the Lord Himself. But according to the Old Testament, sin seems to be victorious even over God's redeeming acts. Even after Israel returns from the Babylonian exile, they were still under foreign powers and still sin prevailed in Israel. Why this long demonstration of the power of sin and Israel's helplessness against it? Even as we went through Judges, many of you were thinking, 
the downward spiral of Israel, I get it. I got that 10 chapters ago. Why do you keep beating the dead horse over and over again? But I have bad news for you. The dead horse would be beaten again and again throughout the end, through, even through the end of the Old Testament. Judges is only the seventh book in the Old Testament. We should have 32 more books to go. But can you blame God for this? An overkill? One of the biggest problems you have is that even after all this, even after 39 books of the Old Testament talking about the downward spiral of sinful people, we still underestimate sin and overestimate our goodness and our power to conquer sin with our own strength. Even after all that, we still do it. When things go well, we think that we are doing so well. And we become spiritually complacent. We stop praying. We stop reading the Bible. We think that sin is nothing. So we still put ourselves in temptation's way and flirt with sin, as Samson did over and over again throughout his life. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God also had to show that the law of God, as good as it is, cannot save us. The legitimate temple with its elaborate sacrificial system cannot save us. The judges and kings cannot save us. The priests and the prophets cannot save us. We cannot save ourselves. That's the repeated message in the Old Testament. Our salvation cannot come from within us. Our good intentions, our resolve, our education, our creative ideas. It cannot come from within us as long as we are caught up in the web of sin. We need someone from outside to save us from the devil's web of sin. And that outside help is not other than Jesus Christ, our Savior. The good news of the Bible is that while sin is powerful, our Savior is more powerful to deliver us from sin. So then, it is not by our frantic, frantically trying to get out of our trouble like those flies that got caught in the spider web, frantically trying to get ourselves free from the web of sin. That's not how we get free. Rather, the way we get free from the web of sin is by being still before God and surrendering ourselves to His help by faith in Jesus Christ and by repentance from our sins. But you see, Jesus did not come just to fulfill a business transaction, simply to pay with his own life the ransom for us so we can be free from sin. No, Jesus did this out of love, even though we did not deserve his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Just as I have loved you, also love one another. 
Not only did Jesus Christ come to show God's love, He came also to give us the full knowledge of God. Not as God is in Himself. That's impossible. God is infinite. Our finite mind cannot contain the perfect and complete knowledge of God. But whatever is sufficient for our faith and living. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his, what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. This is the most powerful knowledge of all, because it is of God, who is the sovereign Lord of all, who has foreordained all things according to the counsel of His will. There's nothing benef more beneficial, nothing more powerful than the knowledge of the mind and the will of God. But above all, Jesus made God known to us so that we might love Him. Because to truly know God is to love Him. God wants our worship to be more than just a business transaction. We scratching God, God's back so that God will scratch our back. God wants our worship to be the pinnacle of an all-encompassing relationship of love. This incredible romance between God and His people. Let us not forget what this means in a larger context. As you're all aware, our nation is going through much turmoil. The pandemic, the social unrest, the unstable economy, the political division, and now the fires raging in our state. Don't you think God is calling us to pray? Not only for our individual safety, but also for our nation, for the world. But maybe there is more. Israel's utter failure in this regard is an urgent reminder to us. Our responsibility as Christians to cry out to God, pleading with Him not only for ourselves, but for our nation. Our responsibility to live as the light and salt of the world. To be those ten righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, because of whom those cities could have been spared from God's wrath and judgment. So I invite you to come and pray together with your fellow saints, even tonight as we pray. Pray for ourselves. There are many brothers and sisters who need our prayers. But we need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for the world. And so, even as we pray, maybe we should be praying for true repentance, starting from God's people, for our worldliness and spiritual complacency, so that we would no longer play religious games with God, but to know Him better and to love Him more. Above all things, Michael was willing, unwilling to die for his gods, but isn't our God 
far more valuable even than our own lives. If we cannot die for God, it is not because God is not worth it, but it is because we don't know him well enough. Because if you truly knew him, you would give up all things. You would sell everything that you have to possess the greatest pearl, as some of you Sunday school children learned last Sunday. Because God has given us the joy from heaven, which is great enough to last, not only th through all the turmoil turmoils of this life, but through all eternity. Let us strive to know God. And as God increases our knowledge of Him, let us love Him more and more. Let our worship and our life be a wonderful dance of romance and love between God and His people not only in this life, but in the life to come. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we give you thanks and praise for your wonderful redemption in Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that though you have set us free from sin through Christ, we still experience the web of sin because of our foolishness in committing sins against you. But Lord, we know that the way to get over them is not by trying harder, but it is to be still before you and to remember what Christ has already done and surrender our lives to you. So Lord, I pray that you would grant us the knowledge of the true gospel, and the knowledge of our glorious and wonderful God, so that through his knowledge, we may not be distracted to the left or to the right by all the things that are going on in this world, but know the path of life so that we may walk on that straight and narrow path, even though it may be difficult because it leads to life. It leads to you. Give us the faith and the courage that we need. But Lord, I pray that that courage will come not by our own resolve, but from knowing you, which will lead to our love for you. Help us to love you more. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.